0: Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about diversity and inclusion in financial services. In each episode, we seek to shine a light on successful progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer practical ideas to help drive change. Our episode today focuses on corporate intelligence. All our guests claim that diversity and inclusion makes a direct impact on corporate performance, and today we explore two specific areas in as much detail as a podcast episode will allow. We explore this through two lenses, by hiring more women to senior executive positions described as gender intelligence, and attracting, hiring, and retaining young talent, the question of millennial intelligence. As always, I'm joined by two leading authorities in their fields. The first is Barbara Annis, the co-author of Results at the Top and founder of the Gender Intelligence Group. Barbara first coined the term gender intelligence in the early 1990s and advises firms how to benefit from gender, diversity and inclusive leadership. Barbara, welcome. My second guest today is Dr. Eliza Philby, an academic writer and broadcaster specialising in contemporary values with a particular focus on helping firms attract, hire, retain and motivate young employees. Gen Z, the new graduate intake, also the millennial generation. Firms across many sectors, including financial services, called upon Dr. Philby, Eliza, to advise them on how best to appeal to young talent. Eliza, welcome. Today's episode is recorded from the offices of the SWIFT Institute in London. And since 2012, the SWIFT Institute has been curating debate and provides a forum where academics and financial practitioners can learn from each other. And as always, we invite our guests to take a minute at the start of the show to talk about specific initiatives that they are working on, and then we'll open up for discussion. So Barbara,
1: welcome. Let's start with you. What, are you. what are you up to? Oh my goodness, where do I start? Well, number one, I've really seen a big transformation in how companies and executives are looking at gender intelligence from a different perspective. It used to be, why don't we just get more women in senior positions, or why don't we just fill the pipeline? So it has been very much a numbers game. And I now see that they've shifted their thinking to really see it. this is actually a business imperative. The fact that we have both men and women at the table actually produce better results. And it also impacts the culture of really creating a culture of inclusiveness. There's a lot in
0: there about culture that we'll certainly return to. But let me turn to you, Eliza. Uh, What what are you up to at the moment? Well,
2: I'm a millennial, so therefore I have a portfolio career, of course. Um, I'm primarily an academic, and at the moment I'm working on research, looking not just at millennials, but across the generations, trying to look at now what is dominating politics, the workplace, and the consumer space, this multi-generational landscape, trying to answer questions like, why do millennial workers prize gym membership over a pension scheme? Why is it that it's baby boomers that upload the most to Facebook? So answering those kind of questions through my research. Secondly, I run my own business called Grad Train, which is based working with universities, helping graduates learn the soft skills that are necessary for the workplace, communication skills, presentation skills, networking skills, which necessarily a degree does not teach them. And then thirdly, my third strand, as you referenced in your introduction, is I'm a consultant. I work with businesses from discrete private banks to major corporations offering financial services, working with them, helping them figure out how can they engage, recruit, and retain young workers. How can they get the best talent? How can they get the best out of them? And how can they keep them for the long term?
0: And, and quite often, that you know, the corporate world and the academic world, but also the the changing dynamics of technology in the middle, are, are, are basically either are either polarizing or, in fact represents an opportunity to bring those worlds together. So we'll certainly be exploring that in the show as well. Um, Barbara, let me start with you. So the the question, I I was fascinated by your book, which is uh, called Results at the Top, is about using gender intelligence to create breakthrough growth. Explain that for us a little bit further. When you talk about gender intelligence, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, gender intelligence is really about understanding differences and the fact that men and women are similar, but they're also different. And when you look at the entire bell curve of differences, you're actually going to see that m- women tend to innovate differently, make decisions, prioritize, think strategically different than men in a complementary way. So often we'll say things like, if you look at any kind of strategy or, or innovation, you need to have t- two modalities of thinking. One is convergent thinking, which tends to be more of a male approach. And the other is divergent thinking, which tend to be more of a female approach. So the combination of those two is what actually produces better results. And that's what we've seen with companies. As a simple example, there are many, many others. But once you really think about this, not from a sameness mm-hmm. thinking, like great minds think alike, to a difference thinking, like great minds think unalike. Mm-hmm. And what is that unalikeness where we see uh, really companies, and especially financial services industry, really making a big difference in, to the bottom line?
0: And, and can you give us some examples of where organizations have really cottoned on to embracing that potential of getting convergence and divergent thinking to, to work together? And what impact has that had upon their performance? And, and where organizations are perhaps a little slow to embrace
1: and, and wake up to the potential? You know, usually, unfortunately, I have to tell you, it's usually a wake-up call, right? So, for example, we have one client that uh, contacted us a, a couple of years ago and said, help, this is an investment company, insurance investment, and they said, 72% of our female clients fire their financial advisor within one year of their spouse passing away. And we don't know why. And I said, well, you probably lost them at hello in the very beginning because they didn't understand that what women valued in that relationship versus what men valued. So that was a big wake-up call. And they spent two years trying to get them back. And of course, we all know that they got zero back, right? Because women had already voted with their feet, right? So that's one example. Another one is turnover. You know, there's a lot of, you know, it goes with millennials too. There's a lot of attention around recruiting more women into companies. And we see that if they haven't kind of shifted how they operate or their culture, they can't retain them. And so there's a big turnover. We have an accounting firm that we're recruiting 55 to 62% women accountants um, into it, into uh, their firm. Yet they had a 27% turnover rate versus 11% men. Costing them a total of $190 million a year in turnover. So, very expensive proposition. However, when they get the wake up call, they begin to see we really need to stand in each other's shoes and understand these differences. And then, be able to be much more congruent with our
0: actions and, and that's where the kind of the concept of breakthrough growth comes in which is if, if when you appreciate that potential and then begin to think differently and behave differently and, and recruit and and also lead organizations differently but is that a little simplistic i mean organizations will probably be nodding along saying absolutely yeah we kind of get all this because diversity and inclusion is important to us etc um can you, sh- can you shine some light on where organizations have really captured that potential and what impact that has had? Yeah, I mean, I'll
1: continue the story around the accounting firm because they, you know, that's an expensive proposition. And within two years, they reduced from 27% turnover rate to 10% women. So it saved them a ton of money. But what really was the big insight for them was that the the assumptions that was being made, which often happens, is that women leave because of work-life reasons or personal reasons, because that's what women tend to say they do, because they don't want to burn their bridges, etc. But when they dug a little deeper, they saw some interesting things. They saw two things. One is that women actually didn't feel valued by the culture of the firm, number one, and this links to millennials too, for example. Mm-hmm. And also, they didn't see a future progression of their career, right? However, when they, in the exit interviews, they didn't say that, Right? They said, I'm leaving for personal reasons, so it created that myth. So that's a huge success story because they actually course corrected and were able to reduce that turnover. But they're also the number one firm to work for for women today and really prized. And they have about a 92% um, increase in productivity within teams because they embedded gender intelligence inside them
0: organization. And 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 in there, I mean, you you talk about millennials and, and Eliza you're you're nodding along to that. Before we get into millennials, I mean it's an expression that is that is bandied around. Uh, I would say arguably lazily, as a a definition. Uh, We talk about Gen Z, we talk about Millennials, we talk about even sort of Generation Alpha now. Can you just break down some of those definitions for us?
2: Yes, and I think it's really important to to make clear distinctions about the different generations and what they stand for and what they represent and what they value, because they're actually very different. So... Obviously, baby boomers, uh, the much maligned, uh, targeted now by baby boomers, are anyone born between 42 and 1965. And then that's followed by Generation X, who are the generation that were born post-66 to 1980. And then we get the millennials, so 1981 to 1996. And then after that is Generation Z, and they are post-1997 through to 2010. And then we even now, coming through, we have Generation Alpha, who are born post-2011. Um, we don't quite know what Generation Alpha stand for just yet. But certainly, the classifications of generations and the, the characteristics of the different generations are very clear. Now, millennials, I think, has become, as you referenced, a, almost a derogatory term. They are and have been in the past classified as the trophy generation, the overprivileged generation, the me generation, the iPhone generation. And there's a tendency, particularly within the workplace, to see millennials as um, disloyal, um, flighty, um, lacking commitment, lacking attention span, lacking a willingness to... Um, kind of adhere to hierarchical and fixed structures within the workplace. And actually, I think that's an unfair representation and characterisation. It's important to understand that millennials as workers prize different things from previous generations. They are, for example, the most educated generation in history. So it's little wonder, therefore... With the fact that global uh, on a global scale millennials sixty percent of millennials have a first degree thirty two percent of them have a second degree that they prize training in the workplace and they want to know that the, that, that the job they, ha- they have will provide training and and education and development for them it 's not something that's secondary it 's something that 's primary to millennial workforce I think it's millennials have grown up in the era of social media, so they prize a democratic conversation within the workplace, they they aren't interested in a kind of annual review feedback style system. They've grown up in the era of social media, where they are everything they post and comment is immediately liked, and you get constant feedback on social media. So therefore, it's little surprise that in the workplace, they pr- they prioritize a sort of constant interaction with management and leadership. Um, so they are really challenging um, managerial and workplace. Structures and norms and practices beyond the millennial generation, because of course already now they are in their thirties, so a lot of them in themselves are ma- in managerial positions. You have Generation Z coming through, and they have been defined by three things primarily. Firstly, the recession, the longest recession in history. Secondly. The rise of social media. So the average Generation Zedder has had a smartphone since they were thirteen, and so their digital footprint has been around, You know, has been there for ten years. So they they are very tech tech savvy and live and breathe technology. And if that technology is not translated or there in the workplace, they. They they question, you know, the, the, the efficiency of that workplace. And then the third thing is they are living through, I believe, the biggest seismic moment in diversity and inclusion history. They are challenging gender norms. They are the most racially diverse, sexually diverse, and gender diverse generation in history. And I think that as they enter the workplace now, so the average age of a Generation Z is, is 22, so they're your new graduates coming through. They are questioning not just a gender and inclusion policy that includes women, um, but one that actually has a much more complex understanding of gender and racial diversity that reflects the world they live in.
0: And and I think this is where there's a huge... I mean, I'm very excited about the potential, but I'm also quite concerned about this disconnect between organisations that understand... I mean, I, I speak at so many conferences, and it's all about, you know, data the management of data, technology, FinTech, about um, you know embracing new technologies to make organizations much more operationally effective. And yet they have to hire and, and attract young talent that ultimately behaves and thinks and engages in a very, very different way. And, and naturally wouldn't necessarily want to work in financial services. They probably want to work for an Amazon or a Google or a, a Facebook. Um, what I'm really interested in is how do we get in, how do or should organisations, and Barbara, you referenced it as well around culture, how do we get organisations to
2: become more appealing? Absolutely. I think the first thing I would say is it requires an attitude change within the organisation. You can't just say millennials need to start at the bottom of the ladder like we did and just keep their heads down and get on with it like we did. So one of the things and one of the the biggest issues I encounter going into companies is actually trying to convince them that millennials will be the best workforce you'll ever have. You just have to adapt and change in order to accommodate to their mindset. So I think attitudinal change. Within that, I think there is a real issue of saying, oh, this is just a HR problem. So one of the kind of Absolute core requirements of, of, of my work is I say, I can't just talk to the HR representative. I have to talk to the top heads of the company because this is actually something that needs to filter down throughout the company.
0: And and can I just bring in Barbara at that point? Because actually, that, a lot of that's around intelligent leadership. And obviously, in your, in your sort of gender intelligence and looking at the kind of the higher levels, are you seeing that organisations that not only understand the value of gender intelligence, but are thinking about in their divergent thinking mindsets, their convergent versus divergent, you were talking about, is that, in, that appealing and embracing this younger talent into the organization will drive better change. And, and
1: how, how are those worlds beginning to, to converge? Well, what I'm seeing with large organizations is a, I say there's equal learning for everyone, right? So millennials can actually also learn from baby boomers and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So the ones that have done it really well have been able to really be much more inclusive in embracing all of these differences, whether they're baby boomers or generational. Um, And what we've seen is that there's a, if you don't do that, you you literally have a turnover of millennials because they're not going to stick around, right? Mm -hmm. If they don't feel valued. But the ones that have done it really well have been able to, not, sort of say, out with the baby, you know, in terms of kind of thing, but really be much more inclusive of in how they look at it and say, oh, these baby boomers have these values, which is a huge contribution. So do the Gen X and so do the millennials. How do we work and collaborate together in a win-win way? That's where I've seen it's been effective. And what, is, what, what I really see is that the women within organizations are calling out these people issues. It's the women who are really looking at. We're not getting along. We're not, you know, we're not relating, etc. So they're kind of calling out that. And the men tend to say, "Nope, let's just get the job done. You know, Mm -hmm. let's just bottom line, let's just get it done." So the complementary strength of the differences play out there as well. Even millennial women will call it out more. And and within the organisation,
0: there are now more. This is a fact that I'd, I'd heard. There are more intergenerational. Uh, there are more generations working in industry and in business today than than ever before. Is is and is actually, Barbara's
2: actually absolutely hit the nail on the head. Is that I go into companies and and they tell me they have a millennial problem, and I always say to them, "No, you have a generation gap, and it's about multi generational, intergenerational understanding, and that can only be engineered through things like." Um, reverse mentoring and, and pairing up millennials and baby boomers, sharing millennials sharing their tech knowledge, baby boomers perhaps sharing their client-based relationship kind of knowledge. Um, I've, I've, I really think it's important that companies understand that with four generations now operating within the workplace, rubbing up against each other, all having different values and different ways of doing it, you will only succeed if you bring all four generations along with you. There's no point in just transforming the company to suit your millennial employees, because as I said, you've got a next generation coming through, Generation Z, who actually are thinking very differently from millennials. And I think that also it's really important that you don't overly focus on recruitment and that retention requires as equal um, attention, because... A lot of companies have really transformed their recruitment strategies. So they are now doing blind CVs, they are now doing um, attracting school leavers rather than just graduates, they are now looking at ways in which to promote their um, job adverts, say on Snapchat, really innovative ways to attract young people. What they're perhaps focusing less on, and where I think the biggest problem is actually, is on that kind of post trainee. Um, moment. So say that those those recruits that have been in the company two or three years have done the training bit and now are kind of looking around going, is this where I want to be for the next two or three years? Um, Also, what I've seen done really well is companies, private banks through to accountancy firms that have almost tried to engineer that startup culture that millennials are really attracted to Um, within their organizations and a much more kind of dynamic entrepreneurial spirit um, being generated within that startup and that enabling millennials to think I can stay within this organization but also actually fulfill and explore all the things I'm passionate about and really interested in and horizontal um, promotion as well so not just saying well there's one way up and that's it but actually moving people around in different departments and different roles. And what that does actually is has an additional effect for the organization because you start breaking down those silos, which can actually really create a staid environment. So
1: I, I really find this
2: an interesting paradox that's going on around when you
1: look at millennials and, and when we look at uh, financial institutions. So I work a lot with financial institutions. And they always say, well, what is Google doing or what's Facebook? doing or what are they doing in Silicon Valley as if they're revering what they're doing and they have the biggest gender issues of anyone. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Point. Yes, Right? The women are leaving in droves. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> they're not sticking
1: around. The culture sucks for women, right? Um, and so we're doing a lot of cultural work in these organizations to bring in empathy, to bring in more inclusiveness because it has been a very alpha male, young, young alpha male paradigm in startups and you, the, the cultural norms that get created aren't necessarily an inclusive cultural norm. And we see that. I mean, we've seen that in the whole movement that has been uh, occurring in the last year or so. Right. So I just wanted to call that out. Yes.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so again, uh, the technology and the, what's interesting about financial institutions, they're actually moving towards technology and, in an accelerated speed. Right? The question is, how can they do it in a way that's effective via technology, but still bring the soft people values with them? That's really the key. Does yes. that make sense?
0: Yes, it does. Yes, it does indeed. And, and and are there you seeing different kind of leadership, I don't want to call them training courses, but are you seeing different approaches to leadership to, to make executives more emotionally intelligent to be thinking about what do younger generations need in terms of how they receive information? Are you seeing some, yeah. some developments in that area?
1: Well, having done a lot of work in Silicon Valley, the big trend today is empathy, right? So you must have empathy. Well, good luck to you, right? And, you know, in terms of just calling when it, it out, empathy. you're going to be an <laughs> empathetic person, right? Yes. So, uh, yeah, so we're doing a lot of training around that, but it's a different type of training. It's not in classroom. It's online. It's right. e-learning. It's real-time learning so where they can actually partner with pearson education to really produce those products so that um, the different generations and also cultures you know that's the thing that we also want to think about because in in silicon valley or technology companies period they have a lot of diversity a lot of asian india etc uh, more, more men than women but a lot of diversity and when you add those cultures in it more gender issues can emerge so it's really more even more important to provide that training because the intentions are everybody has the best of intentions it's not like there's any ill intentions but sometimes there's incongruence between our intentions and our behavior so how do we create that congruence and that's part of the e-learning that we're
2: and actually that links to a really interesting point is that in the rise of artificial intelligence emotional intelligence is key and often lacking and in decline Um, and I think Barbara's absolutely right is is that you need those kind of um soft skills and communication skills that often are in regression when you spend too much time with computers <laughs> um, and and the real challenge for the financial services industry is as they move into at great speed, as you said, technology and fintech will they will it actually set back their gender and inclusion? Um, agenda, um, in order to kind of chase after that, that, that startup, Silicon Valley, ethos and culture and, and dynamism. And I think that's a really interesting question. I think um, one of the interesting comments I often hear dealing with millennial talent is that they cannot make eye contact. They l- cannot hold a phone conversation. They're great at email they're great at quick fire rapid response messaging but their core communication skills their ability to speak one-on-one their ability to nurture client relationships their ability to really speak um in a complex kind of emotional way in an engaging way is often lacking and i think that's where that intergenerational learning can really take off is that you know baby boomers or generation x's who have though that, that how to nurture that client relationship can teach millennials those core skills. Um, and,
0: and a really important part of, of nurturing someone's career journey is the ability to give and receive feedback. And and the slight concern there is that actually, if you if you if you can't have that inter interpersonal engagement but also that kind of maturity of communication to be able to give feedback well and receive feedback well because your life is driven by email and and everything's done through devices that actually that that could be a little bit of a sticking point
2: yes i think i i think that um it's one of the, the the key issues that that certainly um companies have to address i think also and barbara hinted um and alluded to this is the notion of purpose, and that being a core part of a, a millennial worker's outlook. My job has to have purpose; it has to have a you know a social conscience. And and for the financial services industry, that's a pretty that's a pretty challenging question. You know, how does working for a big corporation, big bank, um, big consultancy firm have purpose, um, and how can you generate that through the ethos of the company? um and is that satisfying enough to millennials and one in, one interesting initiative i've seen and work quite quite well is big big corporations now hiring in small companies to basically help millennials find volunteering roles and 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 kind of charitable roles and charitable projects to basically find purpose um and giving them the time off in order to do that And hiring a company to do that and the soft skills because they know if they're a company that encourages that gives time to that and you know actively promotes it it's fulfilling a millennial sense of purpose without a millennial going I'm gonna go and become a teacher or I'm gonna go and um, find a job with a greater sense of you know social um, purpose
1: what's interesting to me about that purpose is that women have wanted purpose their entire lives regardless of which generation. So every time we do a cultural diagnostic and we look at how men and women view in the world, the women women value, men value the destination. Let's get the results, you know, what are we doing the next quarter or this year? That's a great value because that's a win and it's a huge contribution to organizations. Women value the journey to get to the destination. And that is, what what meaning does this have for me, right? So they add much more meaning, which also is a millennial or a generational uh, value too. But it's so interesting that all of a sudden we're calling, calling out purpose when women have been screaming purpose, purpose, purpose <laughs> for decades, you know, etc. Right? Which so.
0: says to me potential and a huge opportunity. Absolutely.
1: A, a, a and and the other thing we want to think that, about is women course. share. Women share. So on an average, when men have a positive or negative experience, they'll tell three people only if it's relevant to the topic. And women will tell up to 32 people, even if it's not relevant to the topic. And that's just verbal. I'm not saying online or with our thumbs. That's even more so. So women can be your best advocates or not, right? So I always say I always say to women, if you have a, a great boss, don't you tell everybody? And every woman put their hands up. Yes, I'll tell everybody. If you have a horrible boss, don't you tell everybody? And they go, yes, I'll tell everybody. So, so it's also important for me external market to really understand your client base, right, in terms of the gender differences on that, because women can be your best. And you can see that in the movement that's happening right now, right, around women speaking up. Let's take a pause there
0: and turn to Cynthia Akinsanya and Robert Pinto Fernandez, who have been scouring the industry for supporting research.
2: Millennials are pro-business, but they expect more from corporations. However, in Deloitte's 2017 millennial survey, 76% said businesses in general are having a positive impact on the wider society in which they operate. But they also believe multinational businesses are not fully realising their potential to alleviate society's biggest challenges.
0: Learning to lead is a big priority for millennials. The same survey states that 75% of respondents believe that their organisations could do more to develop future leaders which opens a massive opportunity for organisations that develop and become known for strong leadership programmes. Thank you, Cynthia and Robert, and links to the references and research can be found on our website, diversitypodcast.com. Remember, that's diversity with a C, not an S. You can also sign up for early notifications of future episodes, and please do follow us on Twitter at DiversityPod, and you can find us on all good podcast channels. If you've enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate a rating. It all helps promote the episodes. And I think the the
1: hashtag Me Too is is very interesting. Barbara, would you like to expand? Yeah. So I've seen in the last several months a, a big um, paradigm shift in how organisations are thinking about culture and leadership behaviour and just employee managers' behaviour. And what I see, first of all, is with the hashtag Me Too, is that we could very easily go backwards. And what I mean by that are two things. One is that we could fall into a victim kind of paradigm I'm I'm not saying we are but we could and the other thing I see is a lot of men are really a lot of great fantastic fabulous men are really getting nervous about this because they don't even know if they should go to lunch if they should do this if they should do that or can I touch her arm or can I do this and that so that's that questioning and that when I first started 30 years ago in this conversation that was there Men said, I don't know how to be polite. I don't know how to be respectful, right? So we could follow that. What I'm seeing, the shift is the how of it. How can I be inclusive and how can we hold uh, people, behavior? So we have a lot of people in uh, companies in New York and a lot in Chicago and in Los Angeles right now who are asking questions like, how can we measure behavior? So we actually have uh, expanded a tool that we already have around measuring behavior in an empowering way, not in a disempowering way. Because we don't want to go back to penalizing or creating mandatory harassment workshops. Right? I don't know if you know, but last year, U.S. alone spent $9 billion on sexual harassment workshops. And there was zero correlation to changing attitude or behavior. It actually created a suppressed environment and it hurt both men and women. And,
0: and the opportunity there is about reframing the conversation in a different way, Because uh, and and it strikes me that with a younger talent, and I'm deliberately using the expression younger talent to be all-embracing in, in in that context, to, to be engaged with that and helping to frame that. Do you think this is something that that, that that younger
2: executives are thinking about? The Me Too movement does represent a seismic shift, a seismic moment in gender relations and there is a danger that within the workplace men are afraid or feel you know constrained and don't know how to behave and women bracketed as victims and that's not healthy for either uh, sexes. I think what I see within universities and, and and obviously university being the sort of hotbed of, of, of talent coming through into the, the workplace, is this culture actually of censorship rather than owner, uh, openness. Um, trigger warnings, um, um, no platforming for speakers, an over-preoccupation with over-sensitiveness when it comes to language, um, material being used within university Courses, all of this kind of culture of actually censorship rather than openness. And I think that's, when you speak to university students, they take it very seriously. And the notion of offence is now broadening, completely opening up to to just a much more broader definition of what constitutes offensive language, offensive material and offensive behaviour. And that's also not and simply in gender i mean that that's across you know kind of oh ethics. across the board yep, across absolutely. the board, racial diversity, yep uh gender sexuality, you name it, and so that I think that culture of censorship may end up when you have those recruits entering the workplace, changing work culture again in a different way um and 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 it's for companies to 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 sort of figure out how they will how they will navigate that um i th- I think that The Me Too, and I'm putting a more positive slant on it, I think the Me Too campaign has does represent a moment when women, and not just women, actually, but primarily women, can finally say this happened or that's inappropriate or there is an empowering element to what's going on and I don't think that should be lost um, because, as we know... Certain kinds of inappropriate behaviour, be it verbal or physical, have gone on in the workplace for far too many years and it's been hush-hushed, it's been silenced and it's been allowed to be covered up. And for far too long, certain men, not all men, but have been allowed to get away with it. And I think what's refreshing is that millennial women and the kind of new recruits coming through, the young talent, they just don't have traction for it at all. And there's a sense in which they they won't even consider being silenced, they won't even consider being hushed up. It will be behavior will be, you know, called out as soon as it happens. And I think that's such an encouraging and powerful and an empowering thing.
0: So as we come to the end of the show, I'm I'm interested to know what are you optimistic about? What 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 excites you at the moment?
2: Liza, let me start with you. Okay, so my reason to be cheerful is that, you know, in the last two years, in the wake of Trump and the Brexit vote, where the narrative was, you know, the baby boomers voted for Trump and Brexit, and the the millennial voters have been um, hard done by, that the generations were somehow at war and in opposition to each other. And... Working with companies in the sort of past sort of 12 months, what I've seen is actually a willingness and a desire to bridge the generational gap in the workplace, whether that be through reverse mentoring, whether that be through sort of changing management style or adapting leadership um, practices in order to accommodate to millennial um, workers and a, a desire to address the generation gap in the workplace. So it may not be happening in politics yet, but there are reasons to be cheerful and optimistic within the world of work.
1: Barbara? So I see a couple of things. One is that men are very engaged. In the companies that we work with, we see men very committed to wanting women to succeed so that's a great thing and that's why book number five that i've written i co-authored with richard netsmith who said famous banker results right, at the top right results at the top which really is about engaging men and for men to really see that applying gender intelligence will actually even accelerate their own win in terms of what they can uh, create and, and impact in their own career uh, so i see that the second thing i see is a from a from a Mindset of thinking, oh God, we got to do this. We got to create gender equality or we got to get the numbers right. To this is actually a business imperative. This is actually a really good thing to do. So I see that positive mining the gold in have, having more women versus having to do that in terms of quotas, is seeing it as a business imperative. So there's two two things that I see
0: that I feel are very positive. Wonderful. So Barbara Eliza, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you both for taking the time hey, to join you. us today. Thank you.
2: This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Robert Pinto Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity, remember to give us a rating or review in iTunes. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.